0: Welcome to Counter Stories, the show by people of color, for people of color, and everyone else. I'm Halili, owner of the Other Media Group and Counter Stories producer.
1: I'm Rev. Anthony Galloway, pastor of St. Mark's AME Church and senior partner at Dendros Group.
2: I'm Luz Maria Frias, deputy attorney general with the state of Minnesota. Any comments and opinions that I express are solely my own and should not be attributed to my employer.
3: And I'm Don Eubanks, associate of Dendros Group and member of the Mille Jubilee Indians.
0: And we have a special guest joining us today.
4: Yeah, I'm uh, Craig Helmstetter. I'm the managing partner of the APM Research Lab. It's a, it's a nonpartisan research and analysis division of American Public Media.
0: Thank you for joining us. We've, we've worked together a little bit in the past when Counter Stories was, was connected with NPR. Uh, and we're glad to have you join us, especially with the latest data that came out um can you just kind of give us a little bit of recap of what that is and how kind of how you guys went about that
4: sure yeah i'm i'm first off i'm super excited to be here i'm really um honored to be a guest on this show um uh you know as as you mentioned i've had various contact with with uh, different uh folks on this group in the past, and I think this is really a perfect group. I'm, I'm, I've been really looking forward to this conversation to, to uh, share some of the findings of the survey with you all and and to really to hear the reactions to the survey. I, um, I remember when we started with the APM Research Lab uh, back in 2017, one of our first big projects was a, a different survey with NPR news and and I think Anthony you were a guest with me on on Tom Weber's show to talk about help digest the results of that survey and that was a great conversation so I'm looking I've, forward I've, to this one as well
1: I've continued to get every now and then folks who are upset with me for a comment I made when I was on, um, referencing that there were no, last I checked, there were no black churches in Lake Wobegon, and there's some folks who are
4: very upset by that. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting, yeah. Yeah, well. Uh, uh, hey, that-
3: Anthony, were they upset because there are no black churches in Lake Wobegon, or were they <laughs> upset because you made the comment?
1: I think it was because I made the comment. <laughs> oh.
3: <laughs> yeah, well,
4: and you've added reverend, to my knowledge anyway. You've added reverend to your title since then, so uh, yep. you're you're helping to solve that problem. I guess <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Great, uh, yeah. So, but but one of the criticisms that we got that that survey was intended to um, look at rural and urban differences in the state. That was in 2017, and uh, one of the you know rightful criticisms that we got back then was, well, what about differences between racial and ethnic groups. And so it was, you know, ever since then, it's been a dream of ours to be able to field a survey that looked at different uh, racial and ethnic groups and tried to, you know, we've, we've kind of gone through a racial reckoning here in our state and across the country. And, and it, I think it, it behooves all of us to understand each other better. And so uh, we were able to, um, you know, we got funding. I should always thank the funders, you know, from the Arts and Legacy Commission, as well as the Bush Foundation. Uh, and uh, the St. Paul and Minnesota Foundations to help field uh, this major effort to, to do a survey. And we did something that we think is really unique and, and really unprecedented in the state, and that is to field a survey that um, not only represents the state as a whole, but represents six different racial and ethnic groups. So we have uh, representative samples of Black Minnesotans, uh, Indigenous, Uh, Minnesotans, Latinx Minnesotans, Asian Minnesotans, and the Asian group, we actually have a subsample of Hmong Minnesotans, as well as uh, other Asians, you know, not including Hmong uh, Minnesotans, and then finally, you know, white Minnesotans for the comparison group. So, I mean, rarely, uh, I I think, maybe the first time I got to know you, Don, was when, when I was working with Minnesota Compass, at the Wilder Foundation, I was given a presentation to DHS when you were there, and you know you were asking me, "Well, where?" In some of the data I was presenting, you know, it doesn't look like you have uh, American Indian or Native Americans represented. And I said, "Yeah, unfortunately, it's just too common that that we just don't have the numbers in our in our data to to adequately represent what's going on." With the indigenous population, and you know, you kind of called <laughs> called me out on on, on that, rightfully so. <laughs>
3: well, and, actually, um, I remember that presentation. It was you, and I forget the name of the other person that was there with you. And actually, it was another employee of DHS that actually asked the question. I won't I won't say who it was. It it, okay. it was a, a female. Um, but what happened is that. It, it was your response. And the response you said was that, you know, and we know that our numbers are make up, you know, we make up less than 1.8% of the population. But when you use the terminology you guys use when you collect data, your response was that our numbers are so small that we become statistical statistically insignificant. And to oh. actually hear someone say that, when you're working for the Department of Human Services, that's a hard pill. And I mean, we yeah. understand statistically that that happens, but it was because you actually said it that. Yeah, that was that, a, that got uh, the
4: reaction. That was a very poor uh, choice of of uh, terminology <laughs> at that time, and so, so I still apologize. Uh, for that. Of, of course, the, the the risk is that if we have, you know, too small a number of any one group in any kind of survey or data set, and we try to say that these, you know, 12 people represent the opinions or experiences of all of that group, that, that just doesn't fly in the kind of work that we're doing. And so uh, sometimes there's a danger, you know, there's more of a danger of misrepresenting than and so we just try to avoid doing that but but i guess the point of of, of that you know again apologies for that <laughs> in the past uh but it always is helpful for people to you know give us constructive criticism so we can you know continue to forge on and do better and and here we actually had a chance to to do better you know we thanks to the funders we had enough resources actually to to go after um you know, as scientifically representative a sample as possible of these different groups, including uh the indigenous population that, that lives uh here in the state. So, you know, we we would have loved to do something even better, you know, just talking about the indigenous population. We would love to have a representative sample of the different uh tribes in Minnesota, for example, to even drill down further, but at least we got to this level, you know, and it's it's again, it's almost never happens that we have <laughs> Representative samples of all uh, six of these groups in one survey done here in Minnesota. So we're pretty pretty proud of that. And uh, I think what's more important is kind of the information and uh, data that's coming out of the survey, and and that I'm really interested in hearing your responses to.
3: When I looked at the report, I know the first question was uh, a proportion of perception of people from those various groups you talked about, um, whether or not they perceived they um experienced discrimination, but then the other questions were actually asking them um if they experienced discrimination so I think there's there's a difference
4: yeah it was uh, so the the part actually this the survey so i the the results i think the specific results that we'll at least start to talk about are sort of one one of many chapters of of, of results that we've issued from the survey and, and these and this. Sort of chapter or the section that we're talking about mostly, I think, here today has to do with discrimination, and so we also ask people questions about their experiences with COVID, uh, with the schools, with um, you know a variety of. We, we actually asked some really um, good news stories. the The next, the next thing that we'll be publishing is a report about, um, uh, you know, what do you think is going great with your community? So uh, that would be another kind of fruitful discussion that's the next report coming out but this one here on discrimination what we were doing is replicating some questions that were done in a national uh, kind of a landmark uh, survey that was done back in uh 2017 um on the national level uh and so we what and what, how that survey approached it was to ask people just as you were saying don you know uh do you uh let's say if, the, if if there was a uh, a black respondent on the other end of the line, do you perceive that there is a discrimination against uh, by the police against bl- other black Minnesotans, yes or no? And then the follow-up was, have you yourself personally experienced a discrimination by the police because of your race or ethnicity, yes or no? And so it was both that perception and then the, the personal experience. And of course, people perceive You know, a high level of discrimination, and then a a sort of a subset of that have actually experienced the discrimination themselves. But the the nice thing, of course, about replicating these questions from a national survey is to to be able to compare well, how does, you know, what are the experiences here in Minnesota compared to the national population?
0: And is that different, I mean, compared to the national population? um, What is Minnesota's numbers comparatively?
4: Well, if you if you think about so we asked about um, the uh, police, as I just mentioned, we asked about employment and we asked about housing. So those are three questions. Then we asked, actually asked there, there was a f- first question about do you believe ex- uh, discrimination uh, exists in general? And so uh, we asked those perception questions and then four other, you know, personal experience questions. So we asked everybody those eight questions. So if you're following my math, we have eight questions. And and the national survey only had four groups. So eight times four, you know, 32. We had 32 comparisons we had uh, for Black, Indigenous, uh, Latinx and Asian uh, populations. And so if we have those 32, popula- that those 32 comparisons, in none of those comparisons did Minnesota fare better. And none of those comparisons were either the perceptions or experiences lower than the nation as a whole. Um, and in fact, in 15 of those comparisons, Minnesota fared worse. And so that, that's what I'm really interested in digging into with you guys is, you know, um, uh, you, you, know, I, I'm a, I'm a white guy and I have experienced, I grew up, i uh, was born and raised here in Minnesota. And so I'm a long time Minnesotan. Um, and, you know, I'm also a sociologist. So I, I, you know, I, I obviously recognize that their discrimination exists and so on, but, but, you know, my, the, 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 the results to me were kind of surprising. You know, everybody talks about Minnesota nice and, and Minnesota being a progressive state but here, our, our results show that we're at least as bad as the rest of the nation, and in many cases, worse than the rest of the nation when it comes to these measures of discrimination. Um, I'm curious, you know, as, as are, I don't see a look of a great surprise as we're looking over Zoom from, from you, Anthony, or you, Don, or I can't quite see your expression lose or, or Lee, but well, but yeah, go ahead.
1: There's a couple. So, so, um, you know, in looking through the different, uh, reports, you know, there's a couple that, that I found fascinating, but the the great thing about the layout, um, for those who follow the link is that there's a couple of summary, um, summary graphs that kind of tell the, 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 the big picture together. So what you dig down, um, deeper, you can go, go you can go more into it, but I'm looking at the proportion experiencing racial or ethnic discrimination, right? The perception piece, you know, there, there are things that are definitely not surprising there. um, That, that uh, particularly in perceptions of white Minnesotans, particularly when you break it down amongst Democrat and Republican, how those perceptions change, even though it doesn't gel necessarily with the experience data. And so I I found that fascinating. Um, But, in looking at that, um, I thought it was interesting here um, that you make a very important point to separate Hmong experiences from the category of Asian. Um, and this is something that we talk about a lot, especially in the school space, because um, oftentimes you'll have aggregate data as a pan with Asian as a pan-ethnicity, but Southeast Asians have a very different experience than some of their other counterparts. And so... Um, in pulling that out, particularly experiencing racial or ethnic discrimination, you see that uh, the rates of experiencing, whether it's racial slurs, employment, police or housing, um, or excuse me, or policing, um, are, are different uh, than the the, um, the the pan-ethnic grouping. Um, and so I, I just thought that was interesting uh, to that that, that, that call-out was there. One of the questions I had is around the BIPOC category. Um, just in terms of the the, the methodology can I just make setup? a quick
0: comment about the taking the the Hmong um, mm-hmm. and getting data on that? I think that was so important, and I really appreciated seeing that because, right, you know, there was a, a story that just came out about um, a PhD candidate, a doctoral candidate, who tried to apply for a program for underrepresented communities, and she's Hmong American, and she was told that she didn't come from an underrepresented community because the data that they were going on grouped all Asians together, um, including you know Asians who have been here for uh, many generations. They didn't separate the newer arrivals or or you know Southeast Asians from other Asians. And so, you know, even though she's was among American, she was told she didn't qualify because she's not from an underrepresented community. And so, seeing this research and these surveys done. And, you know, taking out the Hmong community and getting the data on that, I thought I really appreciated that.
2: I'm so glad the two of you, Anthony and Heli, called it out because that was one of my uh, big observations initially as well is the importance of um, disaggregating the data so that we don't mislead people, right? And Craig, you focus on that early on when you were speaking about the indigenous population. We know that there are the newer rivals of Asian, meaning the Hmong uh, in our community, in Minnesota in particular, who are still struggling um, as much as the rest of, you know, the newer immigrants who have come to Minnesota. And Halli is correct with the over-representation. If you look at colleges, and in particular, a specialized field like medicine, and, and I happen to know a little bit about it because my daughter is currently... A medical student, uh, she'll be the first one to say that the data, when she was going through the application process, looked that Asians, in particular, were overly represented in admissions or applications to medical school, and therefore, quite a number of folks then, and and mostly given folks that were, for example, international students uh, who have. Who weren't born and raised here in the States, but have come on as, um, as students through their visa program and being able then to benefit from the different programs internally, but disadvantaging then those who have been raised here um, through the generations, most recently uh, the Hmong population. And it is really disheartening, but it's encouraging to see the disaggregation of the data As Anthony said, this is a big part of the statistics that we look at in the education space, particularly with public policy. And I know the Coalition of Asian American Leaders, Cal, has been really active on on seeking those changes at the legislature to ensure that this aggregation of Asian students continues to to be front and center so that the Asian population statistics otherwise are not misleading and, and forming a different impression that is, is just inaccurate. So I, I really appreciate that you folks uh, caught that early on. And I encourage you to continue doing that as, as we go forward.
1: lose, I'm curious, is, is there a similar, um, is there a similar experience that happens just because when we get into pan-ethnic uh, markers, um, we lump a lot of folks in and, and of course, you know, the, the 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 data is much deeper than that, but I'm wondering if there's a similar thing happening in Latinx with with that as a panethnic marker that might give us very different stories.
2: You know, it's I reflected on that uh, as I was reading this, and <laughs> as most attorneys would say, it depends. <laughs> <laughs> it depends on where the data is coming from. It depends on what the fields are. It depends on what area of the country. Right. If we look at states such as Texas and California, Mm -hmm. Arizona, New Mm -hmm. Mexico, that were originally Mexico before the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, where that land was then ceded over to the U.S., we have Mexicans there who have who were the original inhabitants as indigenous Mexicans. Right. Mm -hmm. Who have been there for centuries uh, versus you look at some of the other areas across the nation where. Immigration is newer to them, you know, like the Carolinas, for instance, or Rhode Island, where the gains are are nowhere near where they need to be. And then we have an influx of Puerto Ricans who are citizens uh, by birth. And there are certain uh, concentrated enclaves of Puerto Ricans on the East Coast, for sure, New Jersey, New York, a larger influx that came to uh, Florida as a result of Hurricane Maria so there's just, you know, there are a lot of variables, right? And of mm-hmm. course, California, where so much of the population is generationally original, originally from Mexico, right? Mm-hmm. You've got cities and towns all in Spanish. Los Angeles, the the angels, you know, mm-hmm. Santa Clara, mm-hmm. you know, St. Clair, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Things of that sort. So, so there isn't one set answer, um, I'm sorry to say, because we are... Uh, a very different diaspora, I think, based on location geographically, but also um, places where enclaves are really, really large across the U.S. and other states where we are really small, the Dakotas, for instance.
4: Um, And we we certainly, I don't know, maybe you're driving this way too, Anthony, but we certainly could have, uh, you know, for the state's Black population, for example, we would have loved to break out The Somali population, separate from, um, you know, other Black Minnesotans, and and maybe you know, Liberian, other you know, Ethiopia. We could have broken it out a number of different ways, um, and we would love to do additional research to be able to do that. But this was kind of as far as our current resources would allow us to to break things out. Because I'm sure there are some interesting uh, differences there. If if I could just just for the listeners' sake, you know, to illustrate this difference though between uh, the Hmong and, and other Asian populations, just to give uh, just one number on them, you know, when we asked how many people have experienced, feel they've experienced employment uh, discrimination because of their race or ethnicity, um, the Hmong population, for example, said 42 percent, and the Asian excluding Hmong population, 29 percent, said that they had uh, um, experience discrimination. So, you know, it's, it's still large. 29% of the population, you know, receiving, uh, feeling that they've been discriminated against. That's, that's large. But, you know, 42% is a really large number. And for that matter, you know, the indigenous population, 46% of the indi- indigenous population, 62% of the black population, you know, a, a majority in that case of the black population saying that they've been discriminated against personally. I mean, these numbers to me were really, uh, you know, not what you want to understand Minnesota to be about, you know,
3: Hey Craig. Um, and then, uh, what those questions now were, were those questions I noticed on some of the questions, uh, the way they were asked. So like on that question that you just talked about, I think that 40, the 42% are the people who responded by answering always Uh, Well, in this case, the question was... Or were those questions more a yes, no?
4: Yeah, those were a yes, no. The the, the precise wording was, do you believe you have ever personally experienced discrimination because you are, and then we'd give your racial or ethnic group, uh, in Minnesota? So uh, do you believe that you've ever experienced job discrimination because you are uh, indigenous um, here in Minnesota? Yes or no?
1: So, yeah. so Craig, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Because I, I, I got one. I'm, I think you're going the same direction I'm going, Luz. Go ahead.
2: When we think about just uh, the perception versus actual... Come on, come on, Luz. You know, <laughs> exactly,
0: exactly.
2: It, it, you just can't uh, escape the obvious here, which is in the white population. You know, you've got the a multifold... Proportion of folks thinking or perceiving that they've been discriminated against. I mean, let's just look at employment for whites. Said 38% of white folks believe that they or perceive that they were discriminated, but yet only 11% experience actual discrimination, racial or otherwise, in the workplace. I mean, we're talking a fraction, right? And then it gets even more so telling when you think about. Perception involving police, whites perceiving that they've been discriminated against, that was a pretty high number in my mind, which was 27%. But then actual was only 5%. I and mean, we're talking really small numbers for folks who are in, um, who identify as white. And then housing perception that they've been discriminated against at 25%, but actual only 4%. And then voting Perceiving that you've been discriminated against as a white person, 14 percent, but then actual experiencing was only 5 percent. I mean, we I guess I should start with the premise that discrimination of any sort is not something that is approved in our community or in our state or in our nation. But these numbers are really telling because there's such a big disconnect between the perception of white folks Versus their actual experience of these and the the spread there from my just looking at these two charts is substantially larger in terms of a gap than there are the gaps between those two categories across the bipoc individual areas
4: if i could if I could make a quick response to what uh, what moose just uh, said uh, so yeah i think you're I, I think yeah some of these the responses um, from the the whites that we surveyed are kind of intriguing. And that was another surprise for me was just to see how many people, how many uh, white Minnesotans perceived there to be discrimination against whites uh, in the state. And, um, and when we, and then, you know, a smaller subset, but still a a chunk of whites, you know, report actually feeling that they were discriminated against, say when they were um, applying for jobs and we look. We we tried to um, further analyze this data to understand it a little bit more. And um and the the thing that really popped out really was that that those uh, that there was a political difference. I think one of you already mentioned this a little bit, but for this for the job discrimination, for example, um, s- some white Minnesotans did say that they had experienced job discrimination because they were. Um, white, but it turns out that 13% uh, percent of white Republicans reported being victims of racial discrimination when applying for jobs, com- compared to only 6% of white Democrats. So, you know, there's still, those are relatively smaller perceptions, but um, but it's still the case, you know, the Republicans who are white, uh, it was twice as common among that group than, than white Democrats. So there's some feeling, there's some relationship to political affiliation, mm-hmm. you know, re- white Republicans feeling that they've been, been wronged, uh, in some ways.
1: And that, that was the part that stood out to me because I saw a general gap that was pretty consistent between perception and experience across all groups that, that that kind of match, but it was on the, it was when disaggregating along political lines that I saw that gap really balloon uh, mm-hmm. into, in ways that it wasn't necessarily the case in other groups. And so that, that was the part that stood out to me, which, which it's part of the challenge. And we've talked about this on Counter Stories often, oftentimes is that you know, we have to spend so much time proving our experiences um, to a population that isn't experiencing what we're experiencing. And so you can see in the data, just in playing, laying out in the data, how it's very easy to 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 not even be on the radar. Um, and so in our conversations, trying to get folks to to understand the reality of a situation, it, it, this data shows us that many of us can live our daily experiences without having to, um, without without be without ever seeing, without having to see um, the the experiences of other folks, and so that. This 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 data continues to to back that up. One of the questions I had for you is the BIPOC plus grouping. Um, just how that was broken apart in relation to the other um, categories that were here.
4: Yeah that that is that's an aggregation of of all the Got adults it. who, who did not identify as white. That so Got black it. indigenous and uh, people of color. So we tried to you know and some some people just want to make that overall comparison okay. so we include that in many places um, but but I am I, I am kind of curious uh, to hear a little bit more uh, about um, some of your reactions to to some of our findings here and, and one of them that's probably the biggest one that really I mean there's a lot of places where Minnesota uh, turned out to be worse than the national findings on this but but one of them um, was on the proportion of indigenous adults reporting. Uh, personally experiencing racial discrimination when trying to secure housing. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's one of these questions. What's your personal experience? And uh, so, okay, among the Indigenous folks that we surveyed here in Minnesota, it it was way higher. uh, 17% of those nationally who identified as Indigenous said that they had uh, experienced housing discrimination, whereas 50% (laughs) here in Minnesota I mean, and, and so, you know, 17% is way too many, but 50%, I, you know, this kind of, uh, it blew my mind that it was this high in the state. And that, I don't know if any of you have reactions to that or if that, oh yeah, that pans out with, with what, what you've seen.
3: I'm curious. I didn't find that surprising. And I think that, I think that um, if you were to kind of dig deeper, and I don't know, if if you're able, especially indigenous populations, because you know there there's a, uh, I'll take the Mille Lacs band. Okay, that's the only thing I can talk about because I'm a member of the Mille Lacs band, and I was twice commissioner. But when when um, when census data comes out, um, we are a they are able to drill it down to a point sometimes where we get aggregate numbers that tell us how many of a uh, tribe's band members live on the reservation and then how many live off. And so at any given time, every 10 years, it it fluctuates, but not a whole lot. So there are times where, you know, maybe 50% of the population lives off reservation, but it's also kind of a um, ebb and flow because individuals move from urban areas back to the reservation. And 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 unfortunately um, our reservations, you know, we have 11 11 tribes here in Minnesota and not all the tribes experience friendly relationships with the communities that surround their reservations. And the same thing exists down here in the Twin Cities. I still remember vividly going out with my uncles and I, I could, I mean, I remember asking my uncles, why do all the white guys call you chief? You know, those kinds of things, um, happened, uh, happened a lot and still continue to happen. I still hear that term used when describing a native male. Um, I've mentioned on Counter Stories before that, and when in one of the classes that I taught at Metro in the social program, that comparative class, I used the example of how, you know, the, the the comment I made is how creative some white folks can get when they think up terms to refer to Native Americans. And they tend to be geographical. So the first time I went up to Mille Lacs as a, Commissioner of Health Human Service for the Band was the first time I heard the term timber nigger used to describe us. If you go to North and South Dakota, the term changes geographically and becomes Prairie Nigger. So the term is is a geographical, but it's attached to, to that term to describe Native Americans. So for our people I think what doesn't surprise why that doesn't surprise me is the other issue that I constantly talk about on Connor Stories and that's that for Native Americans and Craig we kind of opened up the program talking about that right that we're statistically insignificant so often when these national reports come out we don't even show up but that plays out in real life Day to day, in terms of lack of media coverage, lack—I mean, how often do we hear stories here locally other than the pipeline, right? Or I mean, so so, and you know, there have been other studies that have shown that for Native Americans in their involvement with police, you know, one of the questions you asked was police. Um, native Americans tend to be killed at slightly higher rates than African Americans are here in the United States, than blacks are. But statistically, in media, you never hear that because it's never ever talked about. I mean, when 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 a cop kills a native person, it's never covered. You never hear it. So for me, those numbers. I mean, and then and then we look at. Um, these homeless encampments, now there are a lot of other factors and variables involved there, but, um, you know, when, when uh, natives left the reservation and, and moved to urban, urban uh, populations as a result of the relocation program, they experienced discrimination in housing, jobs, schools, you name it across the board, and nothing's changed yeah well that, that's it's, my long answer i mean yeah yeah
4: well just it's it you know it's startling to hear the the, the slurs that that people are being confronted by but you know when we ask these uh, these uh, uh we asked a question have you ever been called a racial or ethnic slur and to your point don it's you know 64 percent, like basically two-thirds of all indigenous minnesotans Say yeah, I've been called. I've been called a racial or ethnic slur, and by the way, that's a higher rate than than uh, nationally. People report, you know, fifty percent of ind- indigenous people report being called a slur nationally. So, <laughs> on this unfortunate, you know, creative as you called it, name call. And It's yeah, it's uh, among among the other issues you raised. That's you know another thing that's reflected in the survey here.
2: You know, one other field that caught my attention. Uh, with respect to indigenous population is folks who had um, personally experienced discrimination in terms of voting in Minnesota. Uh, 11% Mm -hmm. of indigenous folks uh, have been racially discriminated against when trying to vote. And I immediately thought of an experience that I shared on Counter Stories uh, quite a while ago. For the 2012 election, uh, there are kind of voting situation rooms that each of the parties in Minnesota typically staff with attorneys, and you volunteer to help people problem solve with any voting problems the day of voting. And this is, you know, the actual voting day, not the the early voting that takes place. So you're in this, this room, and you've been trained on the laws and things of that sort, and you are receiving calls that are coming in through a, a hotline of people who are experiencing problems. And I, I will never forget uh, receiving a call from a gentleman who was up north in one of the, the reservations. I, I, I don't want to disclose it because I, I, I want to make sure that um, the information that I share is not attributed to any one person. He had called saying that he had gone down to the voting center that he always would go to And he had been turned away by the um, election judges there saying that that was, or the staff there, I should say, saying that that was no longer a place uh, where he could vote. And he then was surprised, of course, and said, so where do I go? And they just kind of shrugged their shoulders and said, we don't know. So they gave him no referrals, which you have to think about how cruel that is, right? They know where the new voting center is uh, but they refused to tell him. So he called the hotline and I answered and I and I, uh, you know, asked him for his address. And I had a relationship with someone here in, in the Metro uh, working at an indigenous center. And I said, let me try to see if they could help. And indeed they did. They knew where the new voting place was and they offered to actually pick up uh, this voter from his home and take them over to the voting uh, poll, the voting center, I should say. And I relayed that to the voter and the sheer joy that that he relayed through the phone. And I heard a lot of cheering and clapping in the background as he repeated it out loud, what I had just told them. And I I asked him, I said, well, do you have family members in your home who will accompany you? He says, yeah, we've got my family, and we've got my neighbor's family, and we've got people down the street, and, you know, they were happy. He was thankful that we were able to find the right place and that there would be a ride coming, and he thanked me profusely, but, you know, I sat there thinking, are you kidding me? Of all the people that you, as an institution, are trying to suppress the vote, you're going to suppress the vote of an indigenous person? That the... the original inhabitants of our country. And it was just so offensive to me uh, from that standpoint, but I know that had it had he not called in, he and his family and neighbors and their family members would unlikely have been able to vote, uh, but for this voter protection effort that, that was available to him. Um, so that struck me as I was reading the statistic and just thinking that, um, you know, we've got work to do in our, in our state and across the country to make sure that no one's vote is suppressed, uh, much less folks from the indigenous community.
0: So I, I was looking at that voter information too, Luz, and, uh, you know, it made me wonder about how the survey was conducted. Was it offered in multiple languages? Did you ask age? Because in my experience, in every, uh, election, I drive, among uh, Hmong elders to the polls and I help to translate with that for them. And, um, I've they've, they've, They come across so many issues <laughs> being an older person alone, right, and not speaking the language. I have gone to places where I've ended up helping multiple people because I happen to be there. I have, you know, not only Hmong people. I watched a, a Black man get denied, and he didn't realize that, you know, just bring a bill in or have your neighbor come vouch for you. He thought, okay, that's it. I can't vote because they told him that. You know, and they didn't give him that extra information. So I was able to step in and say, hey, I don't think so. But if you don't have those advocates there for you, you know, and do they even see that as voter suppression? So that's the other like, was there a definition of what voter suppression is to help them understand and answer the question?
1: Clee, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up because this 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 comes up so many times. And that is how how we define um and and so there there are many of us who who, um, especially if I've grown up being coming accustomed to a certain thing, I may think it normal. Um, you know, craig, when you when you when you had me on on Tom Weber's show, um when 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 we were there having that discussion around the, the question was centered around feeling hopeful. Um, and one of the things we talked about is, you know, it, at least in my own cultural space, that question has to be given some some caveats because, you know, I grew up saying, you know, somebody asked me that question, I'm going to find an a way to say yes. That doesn't mean that all the indicators that you're actually trying to ask about aren't also true at the same time. So I might register a yes, even being represented in all of the negative outcomes that we talk about data-wise. And I see a very similar um, – uh, not a similar, but I, I see another thing happening here to, to Lee's point in the same way where if I have grown up in a certain experience over time, I may not register it as discrimination mm-hmm. because I've never, um, I, I've never been given an opportunity to think about it differently. At the same time, I also wonder about uh, some of the answers from some of the white folks in the in the in the same data, who may who may perceive or be be, be registering something um, as discrimination when it's when it's we're actually talking about having fair competition or perceiving um, discrimination just because of a perceived perception of loss of power because something may be balancing this. This comes out quite a bit, especially when we think about. Um, on the voting side um, when you compare the experiential. So so am I truly experiencing discrimination or am I finding out that my viewpoint is less popular than I expected it to be in my social bubble? And, and so there's some things like that, that that are coming to mind as I look at some of the responses in the data.
0: Anthony, I'm so glad you brought that up because when we were talking and looking at the data about whites who thought they were discriminated against in employment, you know, I was really interested and in it. it made me think, like, how this data compares to any data that might have been collected before the murder of George Floyd, right? Because a lot of institutions, organizations, you know, are giving grants or are looking to fill positions and they say outright, like, you know, especially with arts grants, right? It's like, we want to support BIPOC artists. And then some of my white, friend, white artist friends were mad, because then they were like, well, why don't, you know,
1: <laughs> Even I'm an though the needle has not shifted at all. Right, right. <laughs> but
0: do they perceive that, that happening, right? So there was a, a call for a muralist um, here on the east side of St. Paul. And they, it was, you know, the, bi- the organization was BIPOC-run, and they wanted to do a mural. And so they were like, we want to have a BIPOC artist. And I have a friend who's a very great muralist. He's a straight white male who lives in Richfield. And he was upset that he wouldn't be able to apply for this and be a participant in this because he was white. And he felt that that wasn't fair to him. So, it's, you know, so it's interesting to see, like, you know, is that how they they feel that they're being discriminated against if it's a diversity hire. I've talked a lot about being a diversity hire. I'm the diversity hire. I'm the diversity scholarship. I'm the diversity intern, you know, and just taking, taking advantage of those opportunities that come to me, but are white people looking at those and saying you're discriminating against me. I can't be the hire. I can't be the intern because of that.
4: Yeah. And I, I think you guys are really onto something here. And again, as a, Being trained as a sociologist, I think the way that I think about discrimination and and racism and those things uh, are—it sounds like similar to the way that you're describing it. That that, you know, the white population is the majority, the more powerful population, so they might feel some discomfort, but but they're still in you know structurally in this upper hand position, and so they're not really the victims of racism. It might be discomfort or something, some change that they're uncomfortable with, but uh, with, with surveys, um, sort of the best we can do is to allow people to kind of self-define those terms and to say what they perceive and, and then to try to understand that. And so it, I mean, I I think, you you know, it it is a question of, of, uh, you know, what's really going on here, but we are asking everybody the same question and they're just reacting to that. And, And so it is, it is the case that, you know, uh, a chunk of Minnesotans do perce- of white Minnesotans do perceive that they're victims of, of discrimination. And, and by the way, when we're making these national comparisons, you know, are things better or worse here in Minnesota? Well, the only group that actually had lower rates of discrimination here in Minnesota uh, was the whites. <laughs> so, so there's less, less discrimination <laughs> against whites to the extent <laughs> that that, that computes at all <laughs> anyway, and at least the same or more discrimination among the other groups. Um, uh, uh, but Anthony, since you brought up this this hopefulness question, I was hoping mm-hmm. to get your reaction on one of, we asked that question again in this survey about um, just a, a very basic question. When you're thinking about the future of Minnesota, do you feel hopeful or fearful about the future of the state? You know, we asked, and that was a question that we were uh, debriefing back four years ago. And the, the finding in 2017, was that the black community was actually the most hopeful uh, of any of the groups. Uh, And, and so guess what today's finding is, uh, you know, at that time, 93%, I think it was, of black Mm -hmm. Minnesotans said hopeful and you helped us (laughs) understand why that was in part because of the definitions and so on that you were just talking about. Um, But when we asked that same question today, that, uh, uh, that percentage, uh, among black Minnesotans had dropped from 93% down to like 72%, I think it was. So it was like mm-hmm. a 20 percentage point drop. And maybe it's no wonder after, you know, all the, you know, murders and everything else that has happened, but, uh, you know, it, it, <laughs> that well, was, it's, just, you know, it's hard just, to hard to see it fall like that. Obviously,
1: yeah. and, and it's just, you know, I think I I, I, sp- I spoke to this from that, in that in that last go around of the question. You know, especially if you were to come to a congregational space, right, where there's mm-hmm. there's there's a, a a culture of you know part of our identity is being able to define um d- define success and be able to smile and be able to like you know get get through stuff <laughs> is part of the identity. Um, Don I think you and I were talking about this, right? We got this term called hood bringing, where, you know, I don't never have to worry about something that don't work cuz we just going to fix it. Uh Luce, I think we've <laughs> talked about that. I think we, actually we've all talked about mm-hmm. that cuz we all mm-hmm. we all from the hood, right? So right. so, you know, there's this there's this this ability to grab and define your own hope that's p- definitely part of it. As a pastor, <laughs> I could have told you that if you walked into my congregation and you asked that question about hopefulness, Folks are going to figure out a way to answer that question in an affirmative way. The dip that you just just described is I'm actually seeing now as an actual pastor of a mm-hmm. church. It, it it it's real, right? The ability for folks to grab on to the to the 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 thing the cultural hopefulness and rock that has been there for a while is eroding. And that's mm-hmm. the piece that is concerning. Um, about this environment different than many other moments where we've been in in, in hard national strife racially um, is that folks are, are, are I am seeing <laughs> that it's a lot harder. It's a lot heavier lift, at least in this moment for me and my own experience, right? I can't speak for anybody else, but that dip is being felt in my own practice right now is in, in spiritual care space where, where we at least have been able to agree that we'll, We'll get through this. Now we're having conversations like, uh eh, we can get through this, but a whole bunch of things are gonna to need to shift. So, so so the faith in that in that perseverance I have seen personally decline in my own conversations.
2: Mm-hmm. Anthony, I, I would also add, you know, when you look at the dates for the survey, and Craig, if I'm reading this correctly, it's April twenty-sixth through June 14th, 2021. So we can't forget that COVID-19 is still a big part of this. Mm -hmm. And we think about the unemployment rate for Blacks right now as we sit here and through um, COVID-19 has been almost twice the unemployment rate of the general unemployment rate and the white unemployment rate across the country. So if you think about that, I mean, that's an additional stressor for Black communities and Latinx communities, indigenous communities in terms of unemployment, in addition to the discrimination, right? In addition to the lack of healthcare coverage that historically plagues the black community, the Latinx community, the indigenous communities. So I I wanna be able to insert that as another variable that is significantly powerful I just listened to the unemployment rate last week and it's still the unemployment rate for blacks right now currently is almost twice the national average of unemployment for across the country, you know, and, and, and that is real. We, there is nothing there with regard to perception. Those that is hard data that we all should be really concerned about.
3: I think another variable I'd like to throw in there. And this is, you know, me, <laughs> this always comes up where I, uh, especially when we well, at any rate. So since that last survey in 2017, we went through a presidency that was, um, you know, we went through the Trump administration, which was uh, for people of color. We had to kind of hold on to see if we were going to survive um, January 6th. We saw uh, white Americans storm our capital and carry a Confederate flag through there. Those we saw patriotism in this country under that administration take a meaning that didn't include me or Anthony or Haley or Luz. When you go through four years of that, and it's not ended. We now have Texas and other Republican led states passing legislation outlining critical race theory, which is not even taught in elementary schools or high schools across this country. But we have an onslaught of Republicans leading this charge. You know, even Trump's administration passed uh, an executive order outlining or outlining uh, training, diversity training. Right for feds and across the board. I mean, so so we've seen we experienced here in in uh, the Twin Cities, um, Jamar Clark, Philandro Castile, and then George Floyd and Dante Wright, and and we haven't seen the needle move. Right, I mean, there was this tremendous response throughout minnesota throughout the world but we haven't seen the needle move you know i feel safer here in roseville because when i what i perceive perceive seeing in minneapolis i actually perceive seeing the minneapolis police stepping back and allowing a lot of this stuff to happen and um and so, you know, and because and, and, uh, gangs have been gangs and, and unfortunately there's activity going on over there. But where are the police? There, there's still enough police to be around to try to try to address those issues. But that's not what I'm seeing. And my perception is being impacted as a person of color, as a Native American, as an African-American. Um, you know, I've I've had a good life. I've, I'm, I'm one of these individuals who have been able to succeed even though I've experienced discrimination. I've still was able to slip through the cracks. And so it's not like I'm you know, I haven't benefited from this country. I have. I've benefited quite a bit. But to live under that kind of uh, onslaught, day in and day out, Republicans down in Texas put out a list of 200 books. That they want to ban, and one of those books is written by Professor McAllister College. All right, a couple of her books are on that list. I mean, so I'm just saying, when when you're when you're um, when you're this stuff is thrust at you day in and day out. We've seen people running for school boards to stop um, to ensure that. They're not teaching critical race theory. And I've seen news media cover and talk with many white parents about this. I haven't seen one local news channel talk to a family of color a black family, a native family, a Hmong family, uh, a Latino family. Not once have I seen that covered from that angle to ask us what we think. It's that kind of stuff that we deal with day in and day out. So it doesn't surprise me that there's a drop of 20% in terms of individuals who are losing hope. It doesn't surprise me at all.
1: Craig, I just want to thank you. You know, in our as we've kind of gone independent, you're our first white guest. Um, and so I just want to call that out since nobody else is going to say it. I'll say it. Uh, <laughs> so, 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 and it matters, you know, I just want to demonstrate that, that we just ain't bringing anybody into the house, right? Uh, you got a ticket, you got a ticket to the dinner table. Um, so, so... um just don't bring any raisins in the potato salad, and we're good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but but I want to pull put out carrots but, in
3: the Jello salad. <laughs> <it>. <laughs> oh,
1: oh, oh. oh, now that's a deep Minnesota thing, right there. Yeah, you can you can take that up with Minnesota folks. Um, but I want to call out um, one of the important pieces of data that stood out to me is around the policing question, uh, because you disaggregate gender wise. Um, And it was fascinating to me to see 80 plus percent of women responding of feeling discrimination and and also at rates higher than men. And so can you talk a little bit about what came came out in that section when you were looking at that data?
0: And an additional question um, was this that um, women, the women who answered felt that it happened to like Hmong women, Latinx women, or is it that they perceive that happens well, to the community th- there as a whole? again is
4: the two questions. Do you feel that um, uh, that um, Hmong people in general are discriminated against because of race and ethnicity by the police, for example? And then have you personally experienced that discrimination? And then, so obviously when we're asking about the personal question, women who are answering, we're answering it from their uh, point of view. And, and, and I think... Uh, So, yeah, in both of those cases, both the perceptions and the personal experiences were somewhat higher among women than men across the racial and ethnic groups. And, you know, the the thing that we hear uh, more often than not in the news is, you know, conflict between, uh, in particular, black men and and white police, I guess, you know, and so it's not. I mean, occasionally we hear about reports of other, you know, of black women or uh, Latinx women or whatever. But but the, the predominant thing that you hear in the news is about uh, men, and so and so that was a surprising result. We I, I I would love to turn that question around to you all because you know that's just a finding that emerged out of the survey data. I, again, it was a surprise not only to you, I guess, Anthony. Surprise to me, and and so I, and maybe it's a double thing that you know you're not only fighting the discrimination of mm-hmm. race, you're also fighting g- gender mm-hmm. discrimination. Mm-hmm. Perhaps I, I don't know.
1: Well, the thing that 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 really struck me first before I started looking at, looking at the the gender experiences, which which in many cases aren't th- you know that they're, they're more, but like for for black women, ninety nine percent. 99 yep. percent so so you know in 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 comparison to to 32 percent of white women and so you know I just the 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 question about the relationship between uh communities of color and police officers and their experience I mean we we will we'll sit here and talk and quibble about um good cops or, or or bad cops and all of these other things um as if there, there needs to be this balance, um, but very clearly, it's balance in the experience um, that is reported here. Um, I mean, to get to ninety nine percent in a population, uh, you know, especially for a sample size like this, I mean, that says something, right? Indigenous women yeah, are ninety five percent. Latinx women are eighty six percent. Right? Hmong women uh, sixty or, or excuse me, Hmong women are seventy nine percent right like like this is this is huge and I, and i think that's something that can't be, be be looked over too much we got a huge problem regardless of what you think about police officers if this is what your what with your constituents are telling you That should be enough to start asking some different questions or seeing some legislation or some conversations move in our legislature differently than we're actually seeing. So I think this also calls out an imbalance of influence and power in the decision-making tables when this is the experience that's there, but yet what you see happen at at our decision tables don't match up with the experiences.
2: You know, Anthony, I'm so glad you called that out because that was the other big aha for me as I read through the report is the gender difference. And I sat here just asking myself, why? You know, and of course, there's a universe of possibilities as to why. Uh, Everything that, of course, you stated, but I also wondered, culturally speaking, um, is there a part of the male psyche that has a level of pride, you know, that...
1: That machismo?
2: Yeah, the machismo that goes beyond the, my community, the Latinas mm-hmm. community, right. That extends across all of these different identities where women are more comfortable perhaps sharing those feelings, right. Versus men who have to have a, a level of um, almost being, you know, disassociated from it because of a, a need for self-preservation, you know, not only for themselves as individuals, but also historically speaking, you know, kind of head of a household and and having to model that to your children so that they are strong. um, I don't know. I mean, there there's a lot of there are a lot of questions in my mind when it comes to this particular aspect, and i I think it would be fascinating, quite honestly, to drill down into what those reasons are um, because as you said you know the decision makers public policy wise are still disproportionately male and we need to have more women in those elected positions i mean minnesota is still struggling to have a, a woman governor this country is still struggling to have a female president for goodness sake you know i mean there are all of these realities that we know whereas you look at other cultures around the world and you know we there've been plenty of women uh, CEOs, uh, heading up corporations, but also elected leaders, prime ministers, and things of that sort, where, why are we so still provincial in our states and in our country?
4: Yeah. And I think, I think that you're onto something there and lose with that, with the, the, you know, sort of masculine, uh, denial of, you know, certain things or whatever, but, but I think, um it, it's also true what you were saying anthony just the the that's part of what we hope that people will go on and use these survey results you know obviously the the if the po- the police have a pr <laughs> a public relations problem especially with populations of color and especially with women uh, of color you know and and i think that they need to stand up and and take notice or i would want to if i you know were in that position we Uh, just to fulfill their their mission what's the public perception and as you were pointing out the percent percentages are extremely high that that discrimination exists um and and so i I think hopefully that's that's something that people will act on
0: that kind of brings me to my next question is now that we have this data what next right that was my question too yep (laughs)
4: <laughs> well, yeah. so
1: one of the things that came immediately to my mind is, you know, sitting, especially in, you know, I'm serving a church in, in Duluth, and there are several tables of folks who are having conversations um, in an area that's very demographically different than than the Twin Cities. But in looking at statewide data like this and being able to put uh, names to some of these experiences, there are several conversations that I've had just in the last couple of weeks where folks— Um, You know, because when you're faced with the reality of something that you haven't seen for so long, one of the responses often is denial, right, which is a response – you know, when you you are faced with something that may make you feel some kind of shame, your brain often does two things. It either creates a universe where I don't even – that it doesn't even exist anymore and I can go back to – you know, I can take the blue pill (laughs) or I can – Face it and deal with it and work through it um, and, and address the reality of the situation. Um, one of the things that this data allows us to do is to demystify the experiences, right? To be able to, to 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 put some 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 numbers to something in ways where folks may not accept your your story or the patterns that people have been telling you forever and ever in a day. But but I mean I'm just going to keep it 100. White folks tend to have a higher respect for data than they do the stories and experiences of people of color. In my experience. And so this this allows this allows us to take that and and put some some action to that to say, so because of this, can we have a different type of conversation?
2: And I think, Anthony, to your point, I think actually it could be a both. And I think using the data, but also the storytelling is really powerful. Um, I can tell you I'll I'll share one quick instance um, that happened in the workplace where I had been teaching implicit bias, um, and it was a presentation. And in that presentation, I featured a family member um, who is uh, identifies as Afro-Latina and, and then shared some personal stories in terms of actual instances that this child, my child, uh, now I'm, I'm getting closer to it, um, had experienced in grade school, in high school, in college and such. And then I, um, one of the the reactions to that, I mean, many reactions, but one of them was from a a white male who said, look, I had no idea this is something that a, a, a parent of a person of color goes through, right? And he sent me a message and said that he was sobbing, listening to my stories of actual incidents of racism against, uh, our family member. And, you know, so, so I, 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 do know that research bears out that the storytelling is really what is memorable for people. You've mm-hmm. got to have three things, you've got to have to, you know, a place and time, you've got to have specificity, uh, and it, it has to be something that can be relatable, right? So from one parent to another, that really hit him home, you know, just really starkly enough for him to be shedding tears during the the presentation. So I, you know I, I do think that the data is really important, uh, but I, I do think combining it with actual lived experiences that any one of us or any one of our listeners who fall into any of these categories can share with folks. and that's what really can hopefully drive the change that we we need to experience in our state. I do think that, Craig, on your last point with regard to the perception problem with police and how they would use this, you know, the other aspect of this is from a recruiting standpoint, how do you expect to recruit police officers or any you know amount of different areas or sectors of employment in our society, when you have this type of data that's telling you, the issue of trust is huge, right? And And that's the reality of it, right? I mean, as we look at the labor issues and employment issues that are plaguing our nation right now, employers need to just really wake up and think outside the box and admit that some of this stuff that they think otherwise doesn't impact them, it does impact them. And it impacts them in so many ways, you know, from an employment standpoint, from a consumer standpoint. From a homeowner standpoint, I mean, the, the list just goes on and on. And having people really sit back and sit with this data, I think is is going to be critical.
0: Luz, thank you so much for bringing up the, the storytelling aspect because that was something that I was thinking about. Right when I look at data like this, I also want to know the story behind it. Right, like why, like why did why do white people feel like they're being discriminated against in employment? I'd like to hear you know, follow up even like, you know, what are those experiences and how they define that. And, you know, thank you for being our first white guest. And, you know, on Counter-Stars- My pleasure and my honor. And, you know, on counter we keep it 100. So I'm just going to say, like, I don't want this conversation that you're having with us to be the, the, the storytelling part of your research. To say, okay, well, we went and talked to people from these communities. I don't want to be that group of people. This conversation we're having doesn't count as, you know, yes, we presented the results and got feedback from the community. Like, there needs to be more in terms of reaching out to communities of color. (laughs) Okay.
4: Well, I was going to say, you know, that's, that's part of the reason this conversation has been extremely rewarding for me is just to... Hear all of the reactions and stories and explanations that you know the numbers are one thing, but it, but it is really helpful to hear it come out. But but that's a point well taken, Haley, That that uh, we we should not end it here, and we don't we don't plan to. We do plan to, um, you know, we have additional webinars and discussions uh, in the works to kind of help bring this. Uh, forward, there is a certain point at which you know I work for a media organization we 're a non partisan you know advocacy organization, so we have to just do our best to get the information out there and then hand it off to others to to you know push for change but but you know our role is to really get the information out out there and and anyway that 's a that 's a great point uh, but i think i 'll use uh you know Anthony, the way you described the the usefulness of having these numbers, maybe I'll I'll just quote you on 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 what you had said a few minutes ago about the importance of this. We we do really hope that people take these numbers seriously and and wrestle with them. Uh, to you know, obviously, discrimination is not something that any one of us should be proud of, and it's something that needs to be addressed in our state.
1: You know, I'm I'm sure it's been across one of y'all's mind too, as we look through through the data. Uh and Craig, this is something that that comes to my mind the moment. I see some data out there that's going that that coincides, because you can you can lay this across the actual outcomes of folks in Minnesota across many sectors, and it tracks, you know, there's there's a lot of of confirming data points in other in other uh, indices, particularly as it pertains to the experience of people of color that are indicated in this in this data. But invariably, we're going to leave here, and somebody's going to take a look at this data and immediately start to try to pull out talking points about why this is not the case, right? So I may see something about, you know, and I'm being facetious in this one, but looking at the at the um, uh, the rates of of BIPOC folks with um, uh, perceptions around police discrimination um, being at at. Um, you know, being in the 95% for indigenous women, you'll have folks who will go and say, well, and they'll pick somebody from that 5% to mm-hmm. represent the experience of the 95% who are saying one thing. And so, you know, uh, one of the things I just want to share with y'all, is y'all know, it's, it's in the back of my mind immediately, and this might be my, 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 you know, trauma-informed care brain going on here, but immediately I start thinking about all the ways that people have tried to, to shirk the reality of some of the data and the experiences and the stories, um, but to try to figure out how to have uh, the the minority experience of a particular group represent the story of of the majority. And so I don't know if it crossed your minds at all, but I was looking at some of these and I can already see some of the talking points mm-hmm. to try to mm-hmm. be formed in certain mm-hmm. cases. I,
3: or or non-talking points, Anthony. I mean, I That's think I brought, <laughs> I brought that up in my last thing. You know, they have not interviewed any families of color in terms of critical race theory being taught in schools. So, you know, it's what's not asked, it's what's not covered, that's just as damaging as um, someone pointing out that 2%, you know, answered this way. And I agree with you, so it's, and, or it's double, we have both those that we have to overcome here at least in the twin cities. And you're so right cuz you know other other reports that that um actually show those um shows those indices in terms of differences between unemployment, housing and all that uh line up pretty well with our perceived with our perceptions and our experience here in Minnesota. And you know, we've talked about that on other counter stories um, podcasts where where you know I'm shocked that we live in a state that uh, rates uh, worse than Mississippi, Alabama. I mean, some of those southern states that we kind of traditionally think mm-hmm. would be much worse. And no, it's Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Iowa.
2: Craig, and I, I-, I have a perhaps just a closing question or set of questions that kind of encapsulates the thoughts that that have been expressed by my colleagues here, which is along the lines of Don't call me a colleague, we're friends. We <laughs> <laughs> family.
4: <laughs> friends
2: and colleagues, my family, my counter stories crew. <laughs> Thank you for the correction, my dear. Um, is what is, you know, what has been the approach of, of American public media to really share this proactively. Uh, with our policymakers, you know, are 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 there going to be some some teachings or sharing, you know, uh, with the policymakers? Will there be some presentations given to the Minnesota Chamber of Commerce, you know, the business groups, uh, the Minnesota Business Partnership? I'm thinking about all of these decision makers who hold and wield quite a bit of power financially, economically, socially on and on, that that we need to just get this data in front of them, right? It can't be this, oh, I didn't see it, or we ran it uh, for a day or two, and that's it. Um, It's about being proactive about this and really putting this data on them to say, okay, you've got the data now, what you're going to do? Is there a game plan along those lines?
4: (laughs) There's honestly, there's not as strong of a game plan as, as we would hope that there, there is. Of course, you know, we uh, American public media has, uh, you know, we're, we're, we do work closely with um, Minnesota Public Radio, and, they, and that's a pretty big megaphone that some of this stuff has been uh, covered by uh, NPR News mm-hmm. and the Sahan Journal has, has, doing, has been doing some coverage of this just to get it out and into the public so that more people know about it. But yeah we're we're definitely open to you know if there are folks in your audience who are interested in having us uh, present don't don't be shy about reaching out to us at at info at apmresearchlab.org just shoot us an email and we can start a conversation about if we can if we can uh, come out and do a presentation or a workshop or something with you about this information or just feel free to take the information yourself off of our website and, you know, use it in your discussions, but, you know, lose are you're in a position of power in the state. And uh, (laughs) if you, if you want to have us, you know, to come and present this, you know, that that could be part of a a, a plan that we're uh, just developing right here in, in real time uh, um, in this discussion, but uh, yeah, we're happy to uh, make presentations and, and help to get it out. But main, main, our main uh, up to now has just been, analyzing the data getting it out there working with reporters and and others to to help um you know get that conversation going
0: i appreciate that thank you well this has been uh, our longest show uh, <laughs> and that's just because there was so much to cover and thank you so much craig for sitting through it with us and listening and i thought this was just such a great dialogue between all of us and sharing our experiences so i i want to thank my colleagues my friends and my Counter Stories family, uh, for always keeping it 100. This has been Counter Stories. I'm Halili, owner of the Other Media Group and Counter Stories producer.
1: And I'm Reverend Anthony Galloway, pastor of St. Mark AME Church in Duluth, Minnesota and senior partner at Dendros Group.
0: I'm Luz Maria
2: Diaz, deputy attorney general with the state of Minnesota. Any comments and opinions that I express are solely my own and should not be attributed to my employer.
3: I'm Don Eubanks, uh, Associate of Dendros Group and member of the Mille Lacs Band Ojibwe Indians.
0: And our guest?
3: I'm
4: Craig Helmstetter, uh, the first uh, white guy to be a guest.
0: of <laughs> <laughs> <Trauma> stories,
4: <but laughs> That's my new claim to fame. Also, also. <laughs> oh, that was a good one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also the managing partner of the APM Research Lab. <laughs> it's been my honor. Thank you.
0: Thanks for joining us. This program is a co-production of the Counter Stories crew. The Other Media Group, and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.